Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how are you holding up with election stress, my friend? Oh, I, I miss quality sleep, but but so it goes. Uh, so definitely it go. spending a fair amount of time on edge, but why should this week be any different? How about you, Leslie? Yes, my dreams have been very, very weird. I was playing supermarket sweep with Kike Hernandez. I blame the election for for these weird dreams. But, okay, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't think you can blame the election for that. I think. I think some things you have to take personal responsibility well, for, Leslie. Well, the night before my <laughs> the night before my my dream was that I was in, being uh, in charge of organizing a cleaning crew to go in and disinfect the White House. So that was my dream on election night. Okay, so, see, that seems much yeah. more. Anyway, that anyway. seems much anyway. more logical. <laughs> yeah, well, enough about that. Let's get into this week's headlines. What do you say, Dan? By all means. Well, this week was a good one if you have news to dump, and that's certainly what we got a little bit of. Hulu has canceled Anthology Castle Rock after two seasons. CBS All Access dropped Interrogation After One. That was the non-linear drama where you could watch episodes in any order. Over at Fox, holdover dramas from last season, Next and Filthy Rich, which were held to debut this fall. Yeah, both of those were canceled. Uh, of those, probably Castle Rock is the one that I will come closest to missing, but that was a show that I never really felt lived up to its full potential most of the time. But the one sissy SpaceX-centric episode in the first season was really excellent. Anyway, so... And don't forget, you have an Overlook, that, which is another J.J. Uh, Abrams-Stephen King team-up that's in the works at HBO Max. So if you ask me, that probably had a bigger reason... Uh, to do with the cancellation over at Disney on Hulu. Indeed. So keeping on this week's little news shifts, NBC has replaced showrunners on The Tonight Show and inked a new deal with host Jimmy Fallon. And in news that broke late last week, but is still worth mentioning, Kenya Barris, the creator of Blackish and the entire Ish franchise, is eyeing a big, sprawling deal with Viacom CBS that would see him segue into content ownership as he looks to build a studio at the conglomerate and exit his eight-figure Netflix pact early. Barris, it's also worth noting, left Disney-owned ABC with years remaining on his contract after a series of missteps there. Vaguely interesting. And on the casting front, Christopher Walken has joined the cast of Apple's thriller Severance. And William Jackson Harper of The Good Place will topline season two of Love Life for HBO Max, which may unfortunately be the thing that will make me vaguely interested in watching season two of Love Life on HBO Max. So go figure. It was cute. Season one was cute. It was a, oh, good, I, I, it was I, a good binge. It was a good uh, mindless binge. It was utterly mediocre and really not even on that level. It was bland as all get out and Anna Kendrick deserved better and William Jackson Harper deserves better. So maybe they'll give him better. Right. But a rom-com with, with Anna Kendrick while we were all stuck at home, no matter how good or how bad it was. Yeah. We watched that whole thing in like two days. <sighs> Still plenty of good stuff and better stuff that you should be watching instead, Leslie. <laughs> well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, there's no other news this week. The presidential election dominated all the headlines this week. And here we are as we record this. It's uh, Thursday afternoon here in, in sunny L.A. Biden appears close, but it could still go 
it, it could still go, you know, any anyway, right? Yes, I, I would. I would say that as of now, nothing is final, and I am guessing that by the time most of our listeners, assuming they listen on Friday or Saturday, listen. It's going to be fairly similar. I, I am not sure when we are going to get a final result of this election. And uh, that's exactly what nearly everybody said was going to happen. And the only people shocked by the fact that we don't have a result as of right now, apparently, are Donald Trump and his administration and his legal counsels, because everybody knew that this was going to be an election where the results on election night were going to shift subsequently. Everybody knew. And yet a lot of people are playing really, really surprised by exactly what people predicted taking place. So guess what? Mail-in voting, it made things screwy. Anyway, this is not a political podcast and nothing I've said thus far has been political. It's a strange year. This is a strange election. Everyone knew it was going to be a strange election, and uh, the strangeness continues, and networks at this point are just struggling to figure out how they're supposed to cover a lot of lack of decision. So it's indecision whenever 2000, whichever year we had that as the Daily Show thing, and it's back again in 2020. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, as as we record this, you know, you're looking at some battleground states where the difference is as as slim as 0.3 percent, you know, in terms of the coverage, which is, you know, getting us back on track a little bit. To me, I was stunned when you had Fox News calling multiple states for Biden. And, you know, the other big surprise to me is I've been watching everything on CNN, but CNN didn't cut away from Trump during his, you know, lie filled address on election night. So what about you, Dan? What have you thought of some of the coverage so far? Well, I think the I think the Trump address on election night was news. And there is no question that CNN and many of the other networks and cable entities made the decision really five years ago that any time Trump opened his mouth, it was news and that they had the responsibility to cover it. And that was probably an incorrect assessment that they made. And it was an incorrect assessment in 2015 and 2016. And it impacted the Republican primaries in the election rather significantly. But in this case, the president of the United States coming out on election night to say anything is probably a thing that you're supposed to broadcast. Uh, but the phrase supposed to is kind of what made this year so strange from a coverage perspective is that the networks all knew exactly what I said a minute and a half ago, which was we are not going to know the results of the election on election night. That is just the situation. They knew that everybody on every network kept repeating that over and over. And yet, even as they were repeating it, they were still treating it as if the rhythms and the ebbs and flows of election night were exactly the same. So they kept doing, I don't know, what CNN does is the key race alerts. And normally key race alerts mean, OK, we're now ready to call dot, dot, dot for dot, dot, dot. And instead, for the most part, it kept being, yeah, it's still too soon to know. But that was the alert. And as a result, it made... The night, even as everyone knew they weren't going to go to bed knowing who won the election, it made it feel as if it was more uncertain than it was. 
And I think that was a bad feeling. And I think it was something that everybody should have avoided. I think there was a way to avoid it and no one figured out what it was. And so I give the network some credit that this year they went a little bit less with punditry and they went a little bit more with straight up analysis of the things that we barely knew. And so that meant that on election night, if you watch CNN, you got hours of John King standing in front of a map and talking about precedent. And you had Wolf Blitzer interrupting him every 30 seconds to either be excited because the vote count in Florida had gone up by 30 people or not, or just trying to make this into a regular election night when really all John King wanted to do was stand in front of a board and say, okay, here's what we know, which is very little. Here's what we don't know. Just dry statistics. That was what John King would have rather given you. It's what Steve Kornacki on MSNBC. Sort of funny to see Twitter falling in love with Steve Kornacki this week as if he suddenly came out of nowhere and hasn't been doing roughly that for the past couple of elections. He's not a he's not a, a newcomer. Come on, folks. You should have had a crush on Steve Kornacki already if you were going to. Uh, but everyone at this point has their own big board. They have their own Steve Kornacki. They have their own John King. You know, the Bill Hemmer over at Fox News was doing yeoman's work, trying to give statistics and trying to give dispassionate analysis on a network that kept bringing in Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram to do whatever it is that they do. So uh, th what I was finding interesting was what the networks were trying to do to emphasize it was different, while what they were failing to do to make audiences realize that everything was different, because everyone on Twitter was freaking out all night Tuesday. They were freaking out overnight on Tuesday. They were still freaking out after I woke up on Wednesday morning because, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania had all changed. Um, it's it. That something needed to be done differently. And, you know, on Twitter, I sarcastically suggested that perhaps what they should have done was they should have not made any announcements at all until all the votes were in. They should have simply said, this is election day. And in two weeks, we're going to make an announcement on what happened because we want to make sure we get everything right. Well, I mean, they weren't really going to do that because that then becomes a kind of smoke filled room. Uh, you know, anything can happen, whereas there is a certain amount of transparency to this. It's just transparency that turns out to be every bit as confusing as a lack of transparency would be. I personally, I guess, prefer to have the data. I prefer to have the numbers. I prefer to be like, oh, look, oh, my goodness, where the hell did those 130,000 votes come from, but at least to sort of see when they came into the equation and to see maybe what county they came from in Pennsylvania or whatever, you know, right. Having, it's like, it's <laughs> like you get to see the demographics for who's watching Grey's Anatomy, where they are, when they're watching and how they're watching versus Emily in Paris on Netflix and having, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of people watched at least two minutes of that in some semblance of I, I'm not even going to begin to try and understand Netflix's attempted ratings, but <laughs> you get the point here, Dan. It's like you want the transparency. You want the network ratings versus whatever the heck streaming is making up, even if we know that that's where most of the people are watching their, you know, these programs now. Exactly. It's it's what we say every single time we make jokes about not knowing what the ratings are for Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. It's it's, you know, in terms of the numbers it only matters to us in the sense that we are people who like to talk educatedly about things. And the more information and data you give us, the more educatedly we can discuss things. And the minute at which you give us no data and no analytics, 
then suddenly we're flying in the dark and it causes us to say a bunch of stupid stuff. So let's just say there was plenty of data on Tuesday night and into Wednesday and people still said plenty of stupid stuff. So it's not like data is this magical uh, panacea (laughs) that allows us to all be intelligent and all be informed and to all see the world in the same way. Tragically, I I believe we are past the moment at which that is a possibility uh, because alternate facts and whatever. Yeah, it... (sighs) just exhausting and the sort of the nonstop coverage of it and the fact that it keeps going means that the networks have been having to, you know, pull programming on in prime time and, you know, extending into the week because there's simply too much news, even if there's no news. So the news is we don't have a winner in the presidential election, but that's news. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the other piece of the news here is that, yes, this is a close race, but there was no big blue wave that that people were anticipating, given the fact that we are in a pandemic and close to 240,000 people have died in the in the U.S. Unemployment is soaring. There are the the, the country is divided both politically. There's a r- massive racial divide. Just after four years of lying, you still had what, 70 million people vote f- for Trump, you know, and, you know, the coverage the, or the lack of coverage of that part of the story in, in this election has been the piece that has also been surprising to me. But uh, I'm going to get off of my soapbox now and kick it back to you, Dan. <laughs> no, I, I think I, I think the idea of a blue wave was reassuring because it gave people only people on one side of the aisle, it should be noted, but it, it gave people the idea that some sort of consensus could be reached out of this election and that and that we weren't going to be a utterly polarized, split, fractious country after a magical election. And guess what? The election was not magical and the split in the country is not something that was going to cease to exist regardless of the results and the idea that election night was suddenly going to cause 70% of the country to see the world the same way. Unfortunately, I don't know that we live in a world where that was possible. So, so yeah. Um, and you know, everyone's talking about ratings and doing the same thing that we do all the time. Oh my goodness, ratings were down. Well, that only takes into account this and that and this and that. Lots of people are obsessing about the election. People are just getting their information from more different perplexing and peculiar places, some of which are legitimate and others of which are coming from completely different planets. Uh, But again, there's just... (laughs) universality is a lost thing in the television landscape and it's a lost thing in America 2020. And we're just seeing that one more time. And, you know, maybe by the time you listen to this, we'll know who won the presidential election, but the things we aren't going to know are still going to outnumber the things we know because that's just where we are. Yeah. Well, that feels like a good place for us to transition to our next topic. Number two. Up second this week, CBS has launched a large chunk of its scripted originals. And among them were three comedies from super producer Chuck Lorre, Mom, Young Sheldon and new comedy Be Positive. 
Last week on the show, we discussed how the early returning shows to broadcast looked. If you could tell that they were filmed in a pandemic. And then we also and Dan also broke down what he thought of some of these shows that did tackle the pandemic in their creative storylines. This week, however, we're going to talk a little bit about Chuck Lorre's decision to do the opposite and not incorporate the pandemic into Be Positive and Mom. Young Sheldon, of course, is set in the past and well, there is no pandemic uh, in that decade. So, Dan, you've watched all, all three of these returning shows um, or you've watched all three of these these series. What does it feel weird to watch a show that is set in the present day where there's no pandemic? It, it is strange. It, there's there's just no getting past that whether it's strange in a way that you find reassuring and appealing then becomes a different question. And I think that there is an entirely justifiable response that it is to say, if I am watching a comedy that wants me to laugh along with it, I would just as soon not be thinking of 230,000 plus Americans dying and of countless, countless more, you know, going through hell of different kinds. I want to laugh. That is that is a hypothetical. Um, and I talked with Chuck Lurie about this back in July. It was an Emmy-themed interview after Kaminsky was nominated for a comedy series. And I asked him if he was planning on integrating COVID and the new world into his shows. And, and his response, and he said this to other people as well, was that he, he wants his shows to have a sort of timeless feeling to some degree. And so you don't want people to be getting bogged down in something that is of a moment and something that people can't laugh at. And so obviously, and we talked about this last week with the Goldbergs, something like Young Sheldon, it's easy. You don't need to worry about it. But it, it it's not easy when you have a show like Bob Hart's Abishola, where the main character or the main female character is is a nurse. I, I mean, and she works in a hospital and she's dealing with patients. And so for that show, and I, I watched the premiere and, and I, I really do find that show low key charming. It's, it's not a show that's going to change your life, but it's a show with a, an appealing sense of specificity. And I like a lot of the performances, but to me, it's distracting that, they're in a hospital and no one is wearing masks and no one is discussing anyone coming in with a, you know, with a global pandemic. It, it's it's odd. And you you look at something like Be Positive and there's another show where there is a, a medical backdrop to the show. The main character needs a kidney transplant. He's going in for dialysis. Uh and he's sitting in a dialysis support group in the second episode. Um, and everyone's just sitting in their chairs right next to each other and nobody's wearing a mask. And and all I could do was think, huh, that that's not <laughs> that's not what it looks like right now. I'm assuming in a dialysis room. So it, it's it's tough. Uh, something like mom is sort of in an in between range because it. It's not a medical show per se, but it is a show about support groups and it's a show about people coming together in ways that normal people in this country haven't been able to come together in, in seven months. And 
And to me, there's a lot of good storytelling that's left on the table if you're not pondering what does it mean for this group of recovering alcoholics if they can't meet in a small, tight circle anymore and then immediately go out to lunch afterwards. What does it mean for addiction and recovery? To to me, this is this is the most provocative story that mom could possibly be telling right now. And instead, they've decided to to kind of punt on that. And it, and it's too bad because mom has been characterized over the years by wanting to tackle the warts and all aspects of addiction, you know, relapses and in at least a couple cases, death. And it, it's a show that's been able to do that really, really well. And yet here you have something that the 12-step community has been dealing with for seven months and and that is unprecedented for them as much as it's unprecedented for everybody. And there are characters on the show who are who are nurses, doctors, who work in tangentially related professions who could have brought it in. And it, it they they chose not to. And again, I've only seen the premiere of of Mom, and I'm not gonna spoil how they they wrote out Christy because at this point you know, <laughs> we're recording on Thursday afternoon and it's supposed to air on Thursday night, but absolutely anything could happen to Thursday primetime. So, <laughs> so, Fair. so, Smart. so I don't want to spoil anything just in case mom, for whatever reason, doesn't air in a few hours because who would be shocked? Uh, but I've only seen the one episode and maybe they find a way to to do nods. You know, I, I would say that the first episode of Mom has what is a very, very, very stealthy acknowledgement of the challenges for first responders at this moment. And, and it uses the character of Wendy, who's the character in the medical profession, to sort of acknowledge the difficult choices that people in the medical world are having to make these days. But it does it without any mention of the word covid and again characters are sitting at restaurants having having lunch no one's wearing a mask it's all it's it's all alternate reality and and cbs is in this this odd position where they're trying to build the comedy brand of the network as being relevant that is something that cbs is very big on at this moment is saying our comedies are all not just broad cbs comedies anymore they're comedies with things on their mind and yet you have a show like The Neighborhood, which is very much broad comedy, even if it occasionally has these little Norman Lear racial insights. And the premiere of The Neighborhood, not to spoil much, has a police brutality, police injustice angle. And no one out loud says the phrase Black Lives Matter. And that to me was also somewhat baffling because one character has a sign that says Black Lives Matter. But the characters are explaining things to each other, but they're stopping just short of actually having the conversations that people are having today. So it's, it's a, does does the pandemic exist on in uh, within the world of the neighborhood either? No, within the world of the neighborhood, there is no evidence that the pandemic exists. It, it's also possible that a couple of these shows in their second episodes could weave something in. I, it doesn't seem likely because, again, Chuck Lorre has said he doesn't want to do this. Uh, and, you know, no no one tells Chuck Lorre what to do at this point in his career. And and he's he's earned that right. Uh, but uh, but, you know, when it comes to sitcoms, 
there's often a situation in which there's a jump between the premiere and the second episode, because obviously there was a gap of a few months. So something like Bob Hart's Abishola, the premiere takes place immediately after where we left things in the finale. Um, spoiler alert, Bob still hearts Abishola. Uh, and so maybe the second episode will will touch on things a little bit more topically, but but I don't get the feeling that it's going to. So, look, this is just something that we're going to keep talking about, because to acknowledge or not to acknowledge is the question that every single creator is asking themselves. And no, no, no two answers or two rationalizations are going to be identical and no two versions of how to handle it are going to be identical. And so... You know, we'll just keep checking in and seeing who's doing interesting and smart things versus who is trying to offer escapist fare at a time that people do need it. So I think there's I think there's service to both. And there are definitely viewers out there who are going to be happy that those CBS comedies are existing in this parallel universe. And then there will be people who will be distracted by the fact that they're pretending they don't exist in the real world. So I don't know that there's a right way or a wrong way. And, and you know, it's tough. Yeah. And wrapping up the segment, is it is worth noting that um, NBC's connecting the social distance comedy uh, from, from Martin Giro was pulled from the network schedule this, this week. Um, it had four episodes remaining to go. Those will stream online for those interested. But yeah, yeah. it's just another sign that, that uh, programming that was created about that particular moment in time is not necessarily something people want to watch right now. And I, and I don't know that we've gotten necessarily a conclusive proof on that count. Eh? You know, love in the time of Corona, not so much a smash. Uh, I haven't really heard anyone talking about the Genji Cohen produced Netflix show, which doesn't mean that people aren't watching it because as we may have mentioned within the past, you know, 10 minutes on this podcast, we don't have Netflix ratings. Uh, you know, with connecting on NBC, you're, you're dealing with a, a sitcom that was promoted a little that had basically no brand name sellable stars. So you can go, did it fail because people don't want to watch COVID shows or just because it was not especially well promoted and it didn't have just a mainstream hook. And so I don't think there's a, a clear answer to that. Uh, they're, yeah. it's a, it's a, everything's a mess, Leslie. Everything's yeah. a mess. We'll, we'll continue to monitor that part of things. But yeah, it is interesting. I, I, for me, I'm, I'm very curious to see how Grey's Anatomy will tackle covering the pandemic. Um, that show returns a week from today. So on, I believe that's uh, the 12th. So I believe we'll have coverage of that uh, probably on the 13th. Anyway, enough about this. Let's move on to our next topic, Dan. Number three. Our next topic is a return to everybody's favorite topic, executive carousel. On the executive front, Don Olmsted is stepping down as president of UCP to become CEO of management and production company Anonymous Content. So here is where I am going to set back and let Leslie explain why this is cool. I mean, I don't know that it, it you know, it, I wouldn't say it's cool or not cool, but it, to me, it's it's interesting nonetheless as someone who covers the, the executive space. And we have certainly seen a carousel, to use your word, of executives changing roles. This is 
what the, the most compelling part of this to me is she oversaw UCP, which is the cable and streaming focused studio that was behind shows like Mr. Robot on USA Network and helped bring producers like Sam Ismail when he almost left to go to Amazon a couple of years ago. She she was among the executives who helped get him to stay um, with a big sweeping deal at NBC Universal. She was also instrumental in keep in getting Seth MacFarlane to come to NBC Universal after he left the Disney owned 20th. And now when you take a step back and look, NBC Universal, yes, we've talked a lot about their restructuring. They pushed out Paul Telegi after our big report on on the culture at, um, under his purview and restructured everything. So now that there's no specific network execs running, running things by network, it's instead organized by genre with Susan Rovner overseeing that. But then also, you know, and she's got to name her executive team. So she's going to hire eventually someone to run unscripted and scripted and late night and et cetera, and alternative. And then on the studio side, we saw Perlina Igbakwi elevated from Universal Television to the head of NBC's giant studio operations after Bonnie Hammer was promoted to vice chair. So now Perlina is now in charge of finding someone to replace herself running Universal Television. That's the studio behind shows like 30 Rock. Now she's got to replace the cable and streaming executive and Don Olmsted. And don't forget, we I think we may, may have mentioned this or may have skipped it because it's international, but... The head of NBC International, Jeff Wachtel, was pushed out uh, last week, too. So she's got to hire three major studio chiefs to work under her. So not only it, it to me, it's just the biggest sign of how traditional media companies are having to rewrite their playbooks. These are the, the studio side is, is undergoing a massive amount of change. All three major executives are gone. Perlina, of course, elevated to oversee the whole thing. And now you have an, an entirely new structure with a whole bunch of new people, including Susan Rovner, coming in and setting that team. So this is a changing of the guard, both on the network side and on the studio side. And that's a lot. Yes, partially driven by the pandemic and cost cutting moves and partially because of this is the time when everyone is is putting all of their investment into streaming. So why not restructure everything? So one big question remaining for me is if they will continue to keep universal television, universal content productions, and NBC International as separate studios under the same banner, or if they're just going to combine everything under one roof and bring in an executive to oversee the whole thing. So the last that I heard is uh, Perlina told staff that she's going to keep the UCP banner running, which is something Olmstead revitalized over the last few years. She launched an audio division with a big podcast push. Yeah, they're they're doing a lot of interesting stuff. They've got that the Tiger King show over there with Tate, with Kate McKinnon, Doctor Death for P, uh, for Peacock. A lot of interesting things that they're doing. They do Umbrella Academy for Netflix. But yeah, that's been a really successful studio, and Olmstead has been a good executive for them. So. I think the I think the big takeaway that everyone should be getting from kind of this weekly as the executive world turns segment that we've been doing is is really and truly just how much overhaul and change and restructuring has been occurring in the industry in these past few weeks or months. And yeah, it's 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 it to me, it's dizzying because it's not really fully my job to pay attention to where everybody is sitting at this point. I mostly listen to you tell us, uh, but. Oh, it's dizzying for me too. Is that a word? I, dizzying? It's God, totally, it's, it's totally dizzying. It's one of those I feel things. Dizzy. It's one of those things where when you're on a merry-go-round, 
you know, you you either get nauseous or you find a still point that you can focus your attention on and that that's, you know, how you how you keep perspective. But a lot of the people who were the still points in the universe, whether it's Cindy Holland or uh, Netflix, yeah, you know, or or who the heck knows, a lot of the people who were the still points who you could count on being there every time the merry-go-round went around have Peter now, Roth. Yeah, yeah, Peter. Yeah, absolutely. Peter Roth would, would totally be another still point who you could focus on at, at this point. Yeah, just just dizzying and trying to figure out what it actually means. And if anyone is going to notice any differences coming out of it, um, I am glad I do not have to be able to come up with those answers. And I admire the heck out of you for doing it as well as you do. Thank you, Dan. I, I appreciate that. And I admire you because you watch literally everything and enough to tell me that I shouldn't be watching Love Life on HBO Max. So <sighs> just saying there are better things you should have been watching. <laughs> if, if Love Life made you happy, then you should watch Love Life. That is that is what I tell people all the time is for heaven's sakes in this particular moment above and beyond. God, you should be watching things that make you happy. <laughs> Yes. Well, speaking of things that you may want to watch, up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guests this week are Mickey Down and Conrad K, longtime friends who are making their debut as series creators and showrunners on HBO's London set financial drama Industry, the series which offers an insider glimpse at the world of big banks, premieres on November 9th. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks very much oh, thanks for, having for having us. us. Thanks. First off, could you just both say your names separately so that our listeners can possibly identify you and, and understand who's who's talking since you guys are, are new to this space? <laughs> I'm Mickey Down. And I'm Conrad Kay. So, OK, let's let's start a little bit big picture. You guys are first time show creators, but you have this fun story of getting jobs in finance at big London banks after university and then realizing it wasn't what you wanted to really do. So talk us through what led you into the world of banking and then what led you to know that you wanted to get out of the world of banking. And then go back to it for television. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, what led us into the world of banking was, I mean, I can speak for myself, but also I speak for Conrad as well. I mean, peer pressure. Um, fear. Uh, I mean, we, we went to a university where that was just, it was all around us. I mean, there, the, you, were, you were sort of being enticed and courted from the, the moment you got there uh, to, to join one of these institutions. And it got to the point where you, you're about to finish your exams and you look around and everyone has a job, but you, and you sort of, you know, they're, they're very competitive, but you sort, of, you sort of fall into it despite it not being potentially the best place for you. So yeah, I mean, I mean, Conrad would probably say the same thing, but I'll let him. Yeah, answer. yeah. I think no. I just think the seductive element is really hard to miss because me and Mickey both studied at Oxford University, and these these firms used to come around like, and and they they were very good at kind of managing your your expectations in terms of and putting hurdles in front of you to clear. So there was always the next thing for you to get, whether it be like a spring spring week or a summer internship, and they'd ply you with loads of free drinks and give you loads of free water bottles with their insignia on it. And it was all kind of like, I don't know, it was, you know, I think what's very true about when you leave college is that you, you're totally unsure of your identity, but at the same time, you, you're sort of convinced that you will be in the next 12 months. And I think it was very seductive for, for people like me and Mickey who'd been in a place like, you know, a university with an old historic institution to go and try to join another one because then we wouldn't have to really work out who we were because the, the kind of the firm or the, the firm's culture would, would speak for us. And that's what's so seductive, I think, about it a little bit. 
Well, okay. So how long into actually working in this world did you realize, okay, this, this was not the right decision? I, I think we both worked out pretty quickly is whether is how long we stayed. Um, I, 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 I mean, I, worked, I, I left before I was discovered. So I left about a year. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I 100% would have been pushed if I hadn't jumped. But uh, uh, yeah, like Conrad is there. I, I overstay my welcome to the point where they had to just they. I don't know. They, 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 these they are quite inefficient institutions in the sense that for the last eighteen months I was there, I really was a pretty poor, poor employee. But I don't remember the day my boss fired me. He took me into a room and he said, "You know what? I really like you as a person. I sit next to you twelve hours a day. I see you more than my wife, and, and you're, you're fun to talk to and stuff. But you are categorically one of the worst salespeople I've ever met in my life. So on that basis alone." <laughs> We're going to have to let you go, which I thought was a totally fair analysis of how bad I was at my job. So I was sort of, you know, I was, I was happy to leave at that point. And then so first, so then how did you guys come together and, and decide to, to go back into this world, but in television? And, and if you're such a bad salesman, I would imagine the pitch process for a TV <laughs> show is absolutely horrifying to you. I think it's it's easier to be a good salesman when you sort of understand what you're talking about. Um, and like the one thing we understood <laughs> we were talking about potentially was TV, which um, I mean I left and and then I, I you know this job was the, the the thing that sort of pushed me into the totally opposite direction and trying and made me try and find something that I really wanted to do. And I left and I the first thing I did was I, I started making this short film just during the weekends about my experiences in finance and like, you know, no budget. I, no one wanted to be in it, so I had to be in it myself. I had to direct it myself, write it. And then I just put it on YouTube and it got some interest from um, NBC. But at that point I thought, okay, well, this can actually be a, be a career. And at that point Conrad was still working in finance and I always wanted to work with Conrad and write with him because I think he's incredibly talented when he puts his mind to it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, but, but, <laughs> I, knew, I knew there was a caveat coming to that. It, it was too pure, it was too pure a compliment. Yeah. No, and so, so like I thought, okay, well, this is, this is actually a viable career option because up to that point, I mean, it, it just hadn't been. Like I've got an immigrant mother, so does Conrad, and like the idea of me saying I'm leaving banking to go and work and to become a writer was just so anathema to everything she understood <laughs> about the world. So, yeah, I mean, like we, 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 Conrad got fired. We, uh, we worked on some other projects for a while. We developed loads of different things. And then we were writing, we were writing a, a film, actually, for this uh, production company called Bad Wolf, which is run by um, sort of veteran uh, drama controller of the BBC uh, called Jane Tranter. And uh, she discovered she had two ex-bankers working for her and she thought, she said, um, have you ever thought about writing something in that world? And we actually had, the first thing me and Conrad wrote together was a terrible script about finance, which had like 10 page scenes about, with characters called Mickey and Conrad talking about how much they hated their jobs. Um, so she, and she said, okay, have you ever thought about the world? And we, th we said, yeah, we have, and it didn't go very well. And she said, have you thought about writing from the perspective of people right at the bottom? Which f felt weird that we hadn't, considering that was us. But that was the thing that unlocked the whole show for us. Like, we wanted to write a relationship uh, drama, character-driven relationship drama uh, that happened to be set in the world of finance. So, yeah. what, what excited us about the show, I think, and the potential for it was like, you know, our favorite uh, HBO dramas and stuff, they're always written with what they, they kind of... I think the executives term a confident subculture. And I guess that means a level of specificity and detail that feels quite authorial and feels like it could only have been written from experience. And I think, you know, me and Mickey were always like, this is a very insidery world. It's, it's a quite complex world. It's a world that some people might, want, might think of as quite cold and inhumane and not want to hang out in. 
and we were always like that's that's all well and that's all well and good and obviously there are some practices in, in there which are very toxic and need explaining but we were also very much of the viewpoint that we could only ever approach it from the point of view of five characters who felt like outsiders operating within an insider's world and that was what really opened the whole thing up to us was that on some level all of the characters in the pilot that we choose to the lens we choose to view the stories through on some level and they're all very different levels they all have a kind of outsider status some more clearly defined than others but on some level all of them do and when we were like okay this is a super insidery world but we can crack it open through the lens of, of five outsiders we actually got really excited about it. Well, then having the main character being a woman and specifically an American woman, when was that made part of the equation? That was sort of from inception. I mean, we, we love outsider stories and we love this sort of the idea of, a, of a someone that doesn't belong in that world coming into it and having to sort of graft their way to the top. And it felt like what is the most sort of unexpected version of a person in finance? And like, and not to say that it was sort of a cynical thing like that, but like, and I feel like, you know, yeah, people like Harper do exist in that world, but I hadn't seen anything in that world through the eyes of someone like that. And it just felt like the most unexpected and sort of unique vantage point for this kind of story. Yeah, we also had a very serendipitous thing happen where um, when we were doing the writer's room for this, we were lucky to have a very talented person in it called Nia DaCosta, who's now gone on to much bigger and better things because she's far more talented than either of us. And she, her kind of, she was an American in London. She had that kind of fish out of water thing. And we very much, you know, she was very, in terms of like creating the, the tone of Harper, the way she spoke, the cadence, the kind of energy, you know, having near in the room for that really kind of informed the way we wrote her and we sort of went from there. So, you know, considering you have, uh, you know, this, this great woman in the writer's room to help with that perspective, but in, in a larger sense, how much of that first season is autobiographical or at least pulled from the things that you guys witnessed in your however brief time in finance? Yeah, I'd say a lot. I mean, I'd say a lot of it is autobiographical. I think a lot of the, you know, when people ask us about the characters, I always say that me and Mickey's DNA is across all five of them on some level, whether whether it can be a small attitudinal thing about certain things, or it can be, you know, a bigger thing about desires or insecurities. I think we're sort of across the DNA of all of them. And then in terms of the stuff that's actually on screen, you know, authenticity was the absolute cornerstone of the show for us at all points. And obviously, when you're doing eight hours of storytelling, there's a need there's a story need for for a certain level of sensationalism which will hook the viewer in but like we were absolutely militant about making sure that the level of jargon we had consultants working on the show to make sure that the trade like all of the sort of trading uh the, the, the way the price action moves all that stuff in episode four which is that really tense trade mistake episode we really wanted all of that stuff to check out and we wanted it to be as authentic and and, and feel totally credible to that world at uh, pretty much every turn because because we thought it would be a disservice to our experience to sort of to not do that i think there, there are things that happen in the show which actually happened to me and conrad but i mean in terms of how it reflects our experiences in that world i think it's more of an atmosphere thing like we wanted to capture the idea of, like you're leaving university for the first time you have really have no idea what you want as a you know a young adult you have no idea who you are and but you're thrust into a world where it sort of expects you to be a fully grown fully formed human and uh I feel like that is what we were trying to capture more than sort of just putting our own experiences on TV um, as they happened. Yeah, there's a level of which, there's a level of universality to the piece, I think, that me and Mickey were really, that, that speaks to what Mickey was trying to say, which was like, you know, it has a kind of generic title in industry. And I think a lot of what we were, were trying to explore was stuff that we didn't think was specific to the financial world, only specific to the financial world. So we thought like the, the, the roles that, for example, this is just one example out of many, but like the roles that mentors play in a career, for example, 
like that stuff that's, that's, that that can be translated to the film industry, the music industry, journalism. And we were we were kind of looking at those, trying to find those kind of universal truths about the the kind of micro politics of, of workplaces. And that was the stuff that we were writing into, and stuff that we found really interesting. I want to talk a little bit more about the jargon thing because uh, Mickey mentioned the fourth episode and the fourth episode revolves around this large mistake that a character makes. And I was watching the episode and I felt the entire time, okay, I have no clue what's actually happening here, but I know that it means something to the characters and so that's what matters. But I was impressed by how little spoon feeding you guys chose to do involving the actual ins and outs of the industry. How hard was it to make sure that people understood the stakes while also making sure that you got to talk in the language these people would talk in? Um, it was it was very difficult. It was a really um, it was a really hard line to to toe and. You know, I think I think because me and Mickey's ear was sort of was used to, to that kind of stuff, you you kind of the vernacular and stuff has almost become second nature. It's like when you spend any time in a, in a culture, you kind of just pick it up. And you I, I think what was really important was was the role of HBO, the role of the production company to make sure that on some level what you just what you just said, Dan, which was like you, you understand the stakes are huge to the characters in the moment. And you understand on some level that they're either winning or losing. Um but I, I think I think what you said about spoon feeding is really is exactly the word me and Mickey always talk about. We were like, you know, TV viewers on on uh, are always much more intelligent than you give them credit for, or that most shows give them credit for. They never, you know, I, I, from my experience of watching TV, I'd always rather someone treated me with the respect and threw me in at the deep end, and rather than rather than kind of um, rather than over explain things, really, because I think it shows a kind of respect for the viewers' intelligence, which me and Mickey were really really we were trying to hit at every possible moment. You know, one of the things that um, is so interesting about the show, at least on on paper before I even saw a trailer or a clip of it, but in writing and covering it on the development side, Lena Dunham directed the pilot, which, you know, is instantly just going to make headlines for the sh- for anything. Can you talk a little bit about what brought her to industry and, you know, what resonated with the, in the script for her? Like what, what were your discussions with with her since this is definitely not a world that we associate with her? The world of finance, obviously. It was it was it was surreal actually because we'd we got greenlit in January last year, and we at, at that point we, I think we'd written four scripts, and we were just looking for a director, and like you know we were looking for mostly UK based directors, and it was going out to people who had done you know a few things here and there, and um, and they sent it to Lena, I think, just sort of off the off chances she would sort of respond to it. And she read it all overnight, the first four episodes. And she's, I think she went to HBO the next day and said, I really want to do this. And, I'm, you know, I, as you said, it's not the sort of the first, the, the world, a world that you would associate with her. But she came over to London and we met her. And she was like, you know, I don't really understand this world in terms of like, you know, the finance world. But I understand these characters. I understand what they're going through as, you know, flawed people in their early 20s and I understand the relationship dynamics between them and she just talked about it with such passion and sort of enthusiasm and just I mean like it was it was surreal as well because we were huge fans of hers and like it's quite odd some some people who have interviewed us have have dug out like the only interview of me and Conrad on the internet where we talk about Lena Dunham and girls as being a sort of inspiration for our writing and it was it was surreal to be sat in a room with her discussing it and, you know, she was very collaborative with us. Um, she was very humble in the fact that she didn't know anything about the world. And she sat, you know, we sat on set with her every day of her shoot, of her, her episode, um, sort of filling in the gaps for her. But, you know, she, she, brought, she brought that sort of, you know, rawness, 
humanity and like an ability to deal with actors as well, having been one herself, uh, which was, was sort of invaluable considering that our cast was so young and so uh, relatively inexperienced. Were there things that she brought to the, the tone of the show that, and the, maybe the feel of the show that surprised you? We always wanted the show to be naturalistic. Um, and, but we sort of, I mean, obviously, considering me and Conrad had never done this before, really, we never, we, we were always sort of towing the line between naturalism and sort of quite snappy, sharp dialogue. And she just brought the naturalism out of the piece via her direction and the way she interacted, she had... Uh, she worked with actors, which sort of set the tone really for the rest of it. Because it felt, it feels lived in, and sometimes it feels like a bit of a hangout show. And that's the thing that she's sort of great at. Now you mentioned that the cast is largely relatively unknowns, fairly inexperienced. What was the approach to casting the young actors? And then, as you were looking at the mentor figures, there are a lot more familiar faces, both as mentors and also as the clients. Was there anyone? on the production side going, can you get one big star to be somebody's boss? You know, can you get one big name just to build this around? Actually, it was, it, we, it was very free. I mean, HBO were very, I mean, the whole way through this process, they've been incredibly uh, in, uh, empowering of me and Mickey. And they, uh, you know, they, they really listened to us across all of our casting choices. I mean, it was very important to us, you know, weirdly the reference me and Mickey talk about when casting this is uh, Chris Nolan's film, Dunkirk. Cause when we were watching that film, we were like, God, you know, the, the guys who are actually on the beach, they would have looked, they would have looked like children. You know, they were 18 to 25 year olds and casting all of these kids who barely had never picked up a razor. It kind of really, it made you, you know, it immediately engaged you in their youth and their kind of vulnerability. And, you know, my and Mickey's impressions of ourselves going into these institutions, like if we look at pictures of ourselves back then, we, I mean, you know, we look incredibly young and out of place in our suits. And I, we wanted to capture that kind of, for us, it was all about, there are two things. Firstly, we wanted someone to watch it and not have the baggage of, oh, I've seen that face before. Because then there's a certain level of like, what, what's the word, like verisimilitude or reality that you immediately get. You're like, wow, this person is, you know, it's almost easier to project onto them in some ways. And then in terms of the seniority and, and people, I mean, we were just always, for the senior people, we wanted them to feel you know, we wanted to cast the best actors for the part. And we were, you know, we were very lucky to get Ken for Eric because Eric was like one of our favorite characters on the page. And then Ken came into it and he, and he just, he did something which, which was so strange and so human and so watchable. And those are the things that like, you know, you, you, you know, on some levels it's kind of Russian roulette. And I feel like, I feel like we really, we got, we got really lucky on a lot of the parts we cast, especially with, with, with given that for a lot of these kids, it was their first job out of drama school. But I feel like someone like Ken, you know, he's if you've watched Lost, if you've watched a dozen shows, you know him, you know, and you like him. But I, I don't have a sense of if he feels like a name from a kind of studio point of view, like is is Ken Leong a name? Is Sarah Parrish a name, you know, or, or are these people just good actors who happen to be recognizable who you said, sure, let's let's bring them that in. Was there. Well, there, was mean, no there was there was no, yeah. there was no. Yeah, sorry. I was there's no pressure to have a sort of marquee name at any point. At all. I mean, we kept talking about with like we wanted to feel almost documentarian in the in the sort of realism of it. And I, I, just, I just we always thought that if you had a big name and some a recognizable face, then it would just sort of distract you from the reality of it. Plus, I would imagine it helps keep the budget a lot, a lot where it is. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is a good that, that is, that's that's a good that's a good assumption. It's a good it's a good consideration. Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> it's like we're talking over we're talking about it very academically, but yeah, it was it was much cheaper. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that we were asking all of our showrunners that come on is, you know, this show was obviously filmed pre-pandemic, pre-COVID. 
And as you think about the future, I mean, I would imagine you have multiple seasons planned for the show first. And then the second question um, of that is, how will that change when you go back to shoot, you know, in success, a second season? Like, you know, can you do these, you know, you guys have a lot of sex scenes on the show. Can you continue that, that kind of standard during, you know, as you film during COVID? It's a really good question. It's just something that I think has to be quite... It, the, the rules about what you can do are changing constantly, and we have no idea that if you know if there was to be a second season or future seasons, what the the shooting sort of landscape would be. Um, I mean, the, 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 going back to the question about the fact that this was filmed you know, before the pandemic, it feels sort of. I mean, we were talking about this the other day. It feels sort of nostalgic almost when you watch scenes of people having dinner and you know partying and having sex, and it feels it feels sort of. I think there's a sense of sort of vicarious enjoyment from all that stuff. But uh, in terms of the practicalities of filming another season, I think it's just something, it's, an, it's, a, it's a movable feast at the moment. I've heard like, you know, in the UK, people are doing quite well shooting and they're being, they're, you know, and abiding to the rules. And you'd hope that it's just going to get easier from now on, but who knows? Yeah, but, you know, in, in a larger sense, though, do you have multiple seasons planned out that you'd like to do? Like, do you have an idea for what seasons two through six are? You always yeah, do. Absolutely. I mean, like, especially from... We, from Carl, I was going to say, especially, like, with a show of people going into a new... Especially young people going into a new environment. You, like, me and Conrad talk about just pie in the sky. You talk about what they're doing in seven, eight years into their career all the time. There's something about, there's something about the, the nature of start, starting with characters entering a job at that age... Um, I mean, a, a lot of the way we thought about the first season was a kind of innocence to experience story on a really r rudimentary level but across all of their stories. Um, and there's something kind of, I don't know, you, you might pick up on this, but there's a, there's a very thrown away reference to Vanity Fair in, in episode four. And like, you know, obviously the show doesn't have that kind of literary pretension, but, but the idea of like taking these kids through, you know, the idea that you could look at them in four or five seasons and they'd be almost, you know, you know, you see them almost grow up on screen. That that really excites us, to be honest. Yeah, as someone who who watches a lot of Grey's Anatomy and has since season one, <laughs> it, it sounds very familiar. Yeah, exactly. Well, what do you guys still have in terms of connections to old friends from back in the finance world? And have you had the conversations with them about how these past five, six, seven months have, have changed the profession? Because you're watching these episodes and it's remarkable. You know, they're basically they're all everyone's sitting right on top of each other. They're having these days where they spend the entire day sitting within, you know, three feet of 50 people. It's it's an entirely different world that they occupy from the world that now apparently we live in <laughs> yeah it's it's crazy i mean it's, it's crazy as well how like you know a lot of my friends in that business it's it's funny how going home has in some ways streamlined and made their work slightly more efficient and you know a lot of my friends who are still in that business have like trading desk set up at home and you know they, they, they're, they've actually found themselves incredibly busy and incredibly engaged in their work and like some of the i know a lot of them have quite ambivalent feelings about going in, back going back into an office or at least wanting to go back a, a, few, a few more days a week. But what I think what Mickey said is so right that there is when when like, obviously I've seen the show so more times than I like to count. But I was rewatching it the other day, and it was you know there was there is a sense of like vicarious pleasure out of seeing people sat on top of each other and like seeing how you know how the world used to be. It's kind of and Mickey's right, it's, it's weirdly nostalgic, and that might also actually be Nathan's kind of synthy eighties inspired score, which actually gives you that kind of weird feeling of nostalgia as well. But it's, yeah, it's, it's really strange. I mean, that's the only word for it. <laughs> 
Now, I want to go back a little bit to to sort of the transition you guys made between finance and uh, and Hollywood and go back to the the one credit you guys have on IMDb before this, really, which is the David Hasselhoff series <laughs> off the record. I'm I'm just curious where that show fit into your arc and what you learned from that experience. That is, I mean, well done for finding that out. I have to have a word of someone. Um. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is going to get scrubbed. As soon as I saw this in our talking points at Dancing Over, I'm like, they, have to, they haven't scrubbed that yet? Yeah, God, oh that was actually God. one of the most fun experiences. I mean, it, as you said, it's our only credit. I mean, we did, we, we developed a lot of stuff, but we, we got nothing with our names on, on TV. And like, it was actually, it was a really weird experience doing that because it was a, it was a, it was a, it was non-scripted. So you sat in a room coming up with the, I was going to say I like Kirby Enthusiasm, but I mean, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't want to be rude. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, wait a second. Mate, mate, one thing to say just before you say all of this, you've got to remember it's international Emmy award winning. I know, that's right. That's, that's true. That, that, that's that, true. That, just for, that, that's, the, that's the key thing to remember before we say anything. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was a really, really experience. It was like, we were, we were like doctors on call on that show. But some people, they would they were sometimes call us at like two o'clock in the morning saying, Hoff's read this read the outline can you make these changes and you know you're waking up and you're doing it we hadn't really done anything at that point so we thought it was totally normal I mean you're also handing in like you know like Battlestar Galactica level like treatments for for half hour episodes we were sending in like 30 40 page treatments with uh, everything mapped out to like this and with all the sort of psychology of Hoff um alongside <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty fun. It was a great experience. And I, the guys who gave us that, that job, I mean, they, it was, they gave us our first experience of writing anything that ended up on TV. So Yeah, we're really grateful. We're really grateful to them. We actually, we actually and I think back on it, we actually had a really, really fun time while we were doing it. It was just such a mad experience. And obviously me and David Hasselhoff was, is, a, is a certain level of surrealism to it that you can never quite get over, I think. So guest role, guest role in industry season two. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he could be a fun manager. He could be a fun manager of some kind. <laughs> well, okay. Do either of you guys have a, a good David Hasselhoff story, or were you guys always sort of a one person remove? Uh, from we were the like Hoff? four or five people removed from the Hoff. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe a whole a whole stadium removed from the Hoff. I'm like, I know we, yeah. we bumped into him once. I mean, I reckon during during the auditions, we were there for the auditions for the other actors, and obviously he was there, sort of testing with them, and he was incredibly funny. <laughs> like, yeah, he like, was. and it wasn't just before, because it was obviously surreal that he, we were meeting David Hasselhoff, but like everything he said made me really laugh. <laughs> He was very self-deprecating and kind of aware of his own mythology to the point where he was actually very good at, at mocking himself, which is which was very very funny to be around. Also, I mean, they had a they had a, they had a premiere for it, which they I mean they said it was in a cinema, but we sort of obviously didn't look at the invitation very well because we we turned up and there was a huge red carpet outside Leicester Square, and me and Conrad were dressed like you know we just rolled out of bed. And they, I mean, I mean, not that we had any interaction with the Hoff there, but the Hoff was obviously in a dinner jacket and everyone else was in a dinner jacket. And we, we, we I mean, it took them a while to remember who we were. Yeah, that was funny. Well, we always like to end our interviews with the same last question. What have you both been watching and enjoying? Oh, it's too embarrassing um, what I've been watching, but <laughs> although I don't, I, don't, yeah. I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but I've been watching The Real Housewives of New York. <laughs> Do you know what? I've not been watching much scripted TV. When you're inside the sausage factory, it's like it's hard to sometimes watch scripted television when you're working on it constantly because 
it's like it's almost doesn't feel like you're kind of turning your brain off. I tell you what is a really good show, which I only discovered recently through my dad, is this Amazon uh, Sundance show called Le Bureau. It's a French uh, spy thriller. And like, I mean, not very many people talk about it. And like, I, I'm staggered by how little people talk about it because it's one of the best plotted, most characterful, uh, interesting TV shows I've ever seen. It's really, really good. And there are five seasons of it on Amazon now, so you can watch it. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on the podcast this week. We appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Thanks guys. for having us. Industry premieres on HBO Monday, November 9th. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Two Weeks to Live on HBO Max, Industry, which we just discussed on HBO, FX on Hulu limited series A Teacher, Showtime's Moonbase 8, and a slew of returning broadcast dramas and comedies. Dan, what you got? You know, a lot of, lot of mixed feelings on, on this week's shows. There's, there's nothing that I'm going to tell you you absolutely positively need to watch. But I think that a lot of these shows premiering this week are, are going to find audiences, in some cases just because people desperately need escapes from CNN and Fox News and MSNBC or whatever your news source of choice is, but also because a lot of them look and feel like things that people recognize and like. So something like Two Weeks to Live on HBO Max, it's a lot like The End of the Bleeping World on Netflix. It's just not anywhere near as good as End of the Bleeping World on Netflix. It, it sort of it tries really hard to be dark and edgy and clever in a way that the first season in particular of The End of the Bleeping World didn't need to try at all. It, it just embodied it, its, its attitude. Uh, but Two Weeks to Live has a clear hook. It stars Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones, and she's playing a character who is a little bit like Arya in certain ways. She plays a, a young woman who's been sheltered out in the wilderness and decides to break away from her mother, played by Sean Clifford of uh, a flea bag to basically, I don't know, uh, experience the world, but also to enact a certain measure of revenge. And I think that Maisie Williams is really charming here and very appealing. And she's playing a character who has Arya-esque aspects to her. And so people will appreciate that. There's just a lot of plot in this series that I didn't care about at all and and kind of astonishingly so, given that it's only six episodes and they're all half hours and it still felt ridiculously padded. Uh, but it's it's not like painful to watch or anything. It goes by fairly fast. Uh, speaking of things that go by fast, Moonbase 8 has, among other things, it has a tremendous creative team. So it's co-created by stars Fred Armisen, Tim Heidecker, and John C. Riley, along with Jonathan Kreisel, who also directed every episode. And it's about basically a moon base simulator in the desert of Arizona that is being occupied by these three very, very low level, not particularly good astronauts. And they're kind of they're not the best and the brightest. They don't have the right stuff. They're pretty much just mediocrities. And given how the creators all have this very, very clear sense of comedy as being occasionally anti-comedy, and certainly all of them have operated in almost anti-comedic mo modes in the past, I would say it almost is reasonable to believe that 
this show about these uh, these mediocre astronauts is trying to be a kind of drab, somewhat bland, occasionally somewhat mediocre comedy. I, I think it might be intentional to some degree. Uh, I laughed a few times. I liked some of the characterizations. There are a couple of guest stars in early episodes that I really, really dug, um, but I don't want to spoil them for you. But I also never think it's a good sign when a kind of surprise guest star is something that you don't want to reveal the, you know, the identity of because it suggests that maybe the substance is not what's there. Um, Hulu's a teacher is based on a film that played at Sundance a few years ago that you can watch on Hulu. Did I call it Hulu? It's FX yes. on Hulu. It's FX yes. on Hulu. Yes, originally is. developed and cast and picked up at, at FX and then is moving to Hulu as part of that uh, channel. All, all in the Disney fold. At some point, we're just going to call it Disney. And here's where you can watch it. Well, it is notable, though, that it doesn't feel like a it doesn't feel like an FX show. It, it, it in no way feels like an FX show. And part of that has to do with the young female protagonist played by Kate Mara. Uh, but it's it just doesn't feel like an FX show. It's there are a lot of odd choices being made here. The movie itself is is very short. It's only like 75 or 80 minutes. The series is 10 episodes. But for some reason, it was determined it should be a half hour drama. I am not opposed to half hour dramas. I just don't understand why that was the choice here. It is the story of an affair between a young teacher and a, a high school student. And it it never quite bridges the gap between being a kind of tawdry lifetime style movie and a after school special kind of approach to the topic. And at times I found it was effective and it was unnerving and uncomfortable in the ways it was supposed to be. And other times it felt as if it was padded and going on forever. And it got to the end and it spells out its themes very, very clearly in the finale. I would say wildly too clearly. Um, I just, I don't really know what the audience is for this. And I don't really know what the audience is for weekly half hour doses of this. Um, it's, it's perplexing. And finally, you, you just heard our interview with the creators of industry. And I think this is a show that probably of these shows has the most potential. It, it is a world that we don't know. The, the finance world is not a world that has been overly depicted on TV. Uh, the characters here are, reasonably different and fresh. As you heard in our interview, there's a lot of jargon and a lot of it makes very little sense, but you kind of accept it because the characters are all worked up by what's happening. And so there's that in, in my review, I compared it to the bold type on Freeform, and And I don't necessarily view that as being an insult. Lots of people love the bold type and it's, it's a similar show to that. It's just, on HBO. So there's more swearing. There's an awful lot of sex. Um, and yeah, I, I think given time and I've only seen four episodes, this could become something that's kind of fun, kind of trashy, but also kind of substantive and looking at an interesting profession. Currently, it's it's not quite any of those things fully. But given that 
you know, it's first time creators and a lot of actors who are very, very inexperienced. I, I think there's room to grow here. So I will I will keep watching to see how the show evolves. I'm not entirely on board with it, but I, I think that even if what it is right now is kind of a guilty pleasure, there's there's value to that. And I think it could become something good eventually. We'll see. So I'll be keeping an eye out. How many episodes have you seen of that? I've seen four episodes. I believe the first season is eight and it's an hour long drama. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it, it builds some tension out of things that aren't wholly expected to be sources of tension. So there's there's a lot of stuff about the work that they're doing at this bank that I do not understand and that I also do not inherently care about. And so the fact that they make me invest somewhat in those things, it, it speaks to something that they're doing right. And so yeah. how it evolves from there is the question. Yeah, I only had uh, time to watch one um, of the episodes before our interview, and I really liked what I saw for whatever that's worth. And I'll reiterate again, as I usually do, that I'm not a critic, so make of that what you will. So and, and the amazing so that that's four shows. And the amazing thing is there's a lot of stuff also still coming out next week that we didn't even get to here. And that includes uh, stuff like Trial 4 on Netflix, which I guess is going to be which is midweek. I'm looking forward to checking that out. I just haven't had a chance to yet. You have HBO's sports documentary, The Cost of Winning. I've watched two episodes of that. It's it's very much a high school version of Last Chance You, basically, set at a private uh, high school in Baltimore, looking at a, the football team there that exceeds its gritty urban roots or something to that effect. It's 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 interesting. I don't know that it's as good as Last Chance You, but it's there. And then I've heard uh, that Dash and Lily on Netflix is uh, is fine escapist holiday television. It just happens that I have no particular interest in that. And so someone else will be reviewing that one. And I wish it well. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It really does help both build word of mouth and improve search position on various things. And all of these things help our podcast grow strong. So we appreciate that. Uh, we are always happy to hear from you guys on Twitter. So come say hi. You know, let us know what we got right, what we got wrong, when you're sick of our baseball coverage, etc. If you have questions. Oh, for, dagger to my heart, Dan. <laughs> dagger to my heart. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, though, and I, I think probably we're, you know, we, we skipped it this week, but maybe next week will be a good mailbag week. So oh, we holi are always, holidays are coming, too. Holidays trust, are coming. We can always use it. And I, I put out a, an ask on, on Twitter yesterday and got a few good questions. Could always use more. So you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, my friend. 